Chapter Two of Ticonderoga by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. Who can he be? said Walter Prevost when they had reached the little sitting room. Sir William called him my lord. Edith smiled at her brother's curiosity. Oh, how much older women always are than men. Lords are small things here, Walter, she said. I do not think that lords are small things anywhere, answered her brother, who had not imbibed any of the republican spirit which was even then silently creeping over the American people. Lords are made by kings for great deeds or great virtues. Then they are lords of their own making, answered Edith. Kings only seal the patent nature has bestowed. That great red oak, Walter, was growing before the family of any man now living was ennobled by the hand of royalty. Pooh, nonsense, answered her brother. You're indulging in one of your daydreams. What has that oak to do with nobility? I hardly know, replied his sister, but yet something linked them together in my mind. It seemed as if the oak asked me, what is their antiquity to mine? and yet the antiquity of their families is the greatest claim to our reverence. "'No, no,' cried Walter Prevost eagerly. "'Their antiquity is nothing, for we are all of as ancient a family as they are. But it is that they can show a line from generation to generation, displaying some high qualities, ennobled by some great acts, granted that here or there a sluggard, a coward, or a fool may have intervened.' or that the acts which have won praise in other days may not be reverenced now. Yet I have often heard my father say that, in looking back through records of noble houses, we shall find a sum of deeds and qualities suited to and honoured by succeeding ages, which, tried by the standard of the times of the men, shows that hereditary nobility is not merely an honour won by a worthy father for unworthy children, but a bond to great endeavours, "'signed by a noble ancestor on behalf of all his descendants. "'Edith, you are not saying what you think.' "'Perhaps not,' answered Edith, with a quiet smile. "'But let us have some lights, Walter, for I am well nigh in darkness.' "'The lights were brought, and Walter and his sister sat down to muse over books, "'I can hardly say to read, till their father reappeared. "'For the evening prayer and the parting kiss had never been omitted in their solitude,' ere they lay down to rest. The conference in the hall, however, was long, and more than an hour elapsed before the three gentlemen entered the room. Then a few minutes were passed in quiet conversation, and then, all standing round the table, Mr. Prevost raised his voice, saying, "'Protect us, O Father Almighty, in the hours of darkness and unconsciousness. Give us thy blessing of sleep to refresh our minds and bodies.' and if it be thy will, let us wake again to serve and praise thee through another day more perfectly than in the days past, for Christ's sake. The Lord's Prayer succeeded, and then they separated to rest. Before daylight in the morning, Sir William Johnson was on foot and in the stable. Some three or four negro slaves, for there were slaves then on all parts of the continent, lay sleeping soundly in a small sort of barrack hard by and as soon as one of them could be roused, his horse was saddled, and he rode away without stopping to eat or say farewell. He bent his course direct toward the bank of the Mohawk, flowing at some twenty miles' distance from the cottage of the Prevost, 
and before he had been five minutes in the saddle was in the midst of the deep woods which surrounded the little well-cultivated spot where the english wanderer had settled about a mile from the house a bright and beautiful stream crossed the road flowing onward toward the great river but bridge there was none and in the middle of the stream sir william suffered his horse to stop and bend its head to drink he gazed to the eastward but all there was dark and gloomy under the thick overhanging branches he turned his eyes to the westward and they rested on a figure standing in the midst of the stream with rod in hand and his back turned toward him he thought he saw another figure too amidst the trees upon the bank but it was shadowy there and the form seemed shadowy too after gazing for a moment or two he raised his voice and exclaimed walter walter prevost the lad heard him and laying his rod upon the bank hastened along over the green turf to join him but at the same moment the figure among the trees if really figure it was disappeared from sight thou art out early walter said sir william what do you do at this hour i'm catching trout for the stranger's breakfast said the lad with a gay laugh you should have had your share had you but waited who was that speaking to you on the bank above asked the other gravely merely an indian girl watching me fishing replied walter prevost i hope your talk was discreet rejoined sir william these are dangerous times when trifles are of import walter there was no indiscretion replied the lad with the colour mounting slightly in his cheek she was noticing the feather flies with which i caught the fish and blamed me for using them she said it was a shame to catch anything with false pretences she is wise answered the other with a faint smile but yet that is hardly the wisdom of her people an indian maiden he added thoughtfully of what tribe is she one of the five nations i trust oh yes an oneida replied walter one of the daughters of the stone the child of a sachem who often lodges at our house well be she who she may said sir william be careful of your speech especially regarding your father's guest i say not to conceal that there is a stranger with you for that cannot be but whatever you see or guess of his station or his errand keep it to yourself and let not a woman be the sharer of your thoughts till you have tried her with many a trial she would not betray them i am sure answered the lad warmly and then added with some slight embarrassment as if he felt that he had in a degree betrayed himself but she has nothing to reveal or to conceal our talk was all of the river and the fish we met by accident and she is gone perhaps you may meet by accident again said the other and then be careful but now to more serious things perchance your father may have to send you to albany perchance to my castle you can find your way speedily to either is it not so further than either replied the lad gaily but you may have a heavy burden to carry rejoined sir william do you think you can bear it i mean the burden of a secret i will not drop it by the way answered walter gravely not if the sachem's daughter offered to divide the load asked his companion doubt me not said walter i do not said sir william i do not but i would have you warned and now farewell you are very young to meet maidens in the wood be careful farewell he rode on and the boy tarried by the roadside and meditated in about two minutes he took his way up the stream again still musing 
toward the place where he had laid down his rod. He sprang up the bank and in amongst the maples, and some ten minutes after, the sun rising higher, poured its light through the stems upon a boy and girl seated at the foot of an old tree. He with his arms around her, and his hand resting on the soft brown velvety skin, and she with her head upon his bosom, and her warm lips within the reach of his. Her skin was brown, I have said, yes, very brown, but still hardly browner than his own. Her eyes were dark and bright, of the true Indian hue, but larger and more open than is at all common in many of the tribes of the Iroquois. Her lips, too, were rosy, and as pure of all tinge of brown as those of any child of Europe, and her fingers also were stained of Aurora's own hue. But her long, silky black hair would have spoken her race at once, had not each tress terminated in a wavy curl. The lines of the form and of the face were all wonderfully lovely, too, and yet were hardly those which characterised so peculiarly the Indian nations. The nose was straighter, the cheekbones less prominent, the head more beautifully set upon the shoulders. The expression, too, as she rested there, with her cheek leaning on his breast, was not that of the usual Indian countenance. It was softer, more tender, more impassioned, for though romance and poetry have done all they could to spiritualise the character of Indian love, I fear from what I have seen and heard and known, it is rarely what it has been portrayed. Her face, however, was full of love and tenderness and emotion, and the picture of the two as they sat there told at once of a tale of love just spoken to a willing ear. End of chapter 2